Welcome back to the Wise Athletes Podcast. For episode number 82, we are rejoined by Matt Fitzgerald. You may recall from episode 76 that Matt is a journalist, author, coach, and runner specializing in the topics of health, fitness, nutrition, and endurance sports training. His books include Performance Nutrition, Racing Weight, Diet Cults, The Endurance Diet, On Pace, And today's discussion is going to be about suffering in the context of physical effort when your body wants you to stop and you just have to find a way to keep going. Have you ever watched the best of the best and think it came easy to them? Or maybe you know how much they are hurting when they perform at their best and you just can't imagine how they do it. Or maybe you've experienced the pain of really pushing hard and found that you just don't want it badly enough or think that your competitors just have it easier than you somehow. Listen in as Matt tells Glenn and I about his personal journey and the book he wrote on just this topic called How Bad Do You Want It? Matt explains the tools and the tricks used by the best to endure the suffering just a bit longer on the path to winning. It's really a great lesson for us all. All right, let's talk to Matt Fitzgerald, the author of How Bad Do You Want It? Mastering the Psychology of Mind Over Muscle. Matt Fitzgerald, welcome back to the Wise Athletes Podcast. It's great to be back. And Glenn, good to see you, sir, back from South Korea. I almost said North Korea, but that would have been, you wouldn't have been back. (laughs) I wouldn't have come back from North Korea. (laughs) You couldn't have gotten out. Okay, well, good. Well, we got an episode in the can for your experience there. We'll we'll publish that one of these days. Uh, So back to you, Matt. Uh, Thank you. Last time you were on the podcast, that was episode number 76 for anybody who's interested in looking for that. We had a really interesting and actually useful discussion for me about sugar as a performance enhancer but not as a health food and then sort of related to that managing body composition and race weight and uh, that was really interesting to me but today I wanted to focus on an area totally different you mentioned at the end of our last talk that another area of interest for you was the psychological side of endurance sports and then I a couple of other things happened I found a book of yours on Kerry Jackson's list of the five books every athlete should read. And uh, so for the audience's benefit, it's called How Bad Do You Want It? Mastering the Psychology of Mind Over Muscle. Tell us about that. What do you mean by that? Yes, this goes back to my earliest days as, as an endurance athlete. You know, I was, uh, I remember there was a, a, an event called Field Day at the elementary school in New Hampshire I went to where one of the events was like a, it was like two laps around a soccer field or something. And and so that was my first taste of trying to run both fast and far. You know, kids love to race and run, but it's always like full speed to the mailbox and that's yeah. it. Yeah. So I, I just remember, I just have the most powerful memory. I would have been, you know, 11 years old and just the intensity and novelty of the suffering involved of like, you know, like, like I'm done. I've I've shot my wad and I'm I haven't even finished the first lap. And <laughs> and from that moment on, you know, I, I became a runner through my my dad's influence. Not that long thereafter, but uh, you know, it's and I actually won that race. Um, wow! And it, you know, I don't think it was because I was the fastest. It was just because like I suffered more. And and for me, I'm like this is this is what this sport is all about. And I really never really changed my mind about that. But you know, oddly. Um, in high school, I became a classic head case where um, I just, you know, I, I rose to the level where at first, you know, I was PRing in every race. I'm like, yeah, I just keep getting better. But when I got to the level where I was competing for individual state championship titles and I was like, it was me against the best. 
um, to take that next step, I realized that I, I couldn't just keep riding the wave of maturing and improving, that I actually had to suffer even more than I had in the past. And I've, I found myself unable to take that step. And it really, uh, it actually ruined the entire sport for me. And I ended up quitting. I was supposed to run in college and, and beyond it, but I actually quit running for years. Huh. Um, and then when I got back into it in my uh, mid-late 20s, I had this monkey on my back. It's like I had unfinished business in terms of, you know, I wished I hadn't quit and seen, you know, had an opportunity to see how good I could be. But more than that, I wanted to change how I saw myself as an athlete. I, I saw myself as a coward and I did not like that. So it became oh. this big project of mine for the, you know, the, the second act of my life as an athlete. And that led me into getting really into the science and and it just happened this this, ha this is we're, we're going back to like the now the late 90s and it, it happened this all was happening at a time of um where there was a lot going on in terms of like you know they they called the 90s the decade of the brain because like finally we're we're opening up this black box and figuring out like what the hell is going on inside um our our brains in in all manner of activities but in, including you know endurance sports and and so uh, and so that book is really where my lifelong you know interest you know personal interest uh in the the psychological dimension of, of endurance sports came together with what i was learning from the ongoing science and and the result was how bad do you want it how interesting i i want to come back to this you felt like a coward i you and i have a similar psychology in that i i mean one of my biggest fears is the fear of being afraid i hate that and i what i hate even worse is not doing something because i'm afraid of it so let's come back to that anyway in your book you talk about mental fortitude of the really the best of the best people who we all would names we would recognize do you think that these ideas and these techniques that they employ apply to regular people you know like me yeah i mean that that's kind of a it's really a core conviction of mine that 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 these people are they're special but they are in fact human um and you know one of the things that, that's you know, one of the cool opportunities i've had in my career is to be able to spend quality time around some of the world's greatest endurance athletes and and actually it, it became a big driving force in in my effort to to become mentally tough or mentally strong was that i realized these people aren't that different from me. Like, like this is doable. Um, at the beginning of that book, I talk about an interview I did with uh, the now retired triathlete Hunter Kemper, who was like a four or five time Olympian for the US in triathlon. And it just came out over the course of uh, the, the, the interview that my high school time for two miles was better than his. <laughs> and, this, <Wow. laughs> and this guy's going to the Olympics and I'm nowhere close. And I, I, I'm like, I have no excuse. I have absolutely no excuse. And, and it really, I call it benign shaming. Uh, so like, I, I just like, I'm going to use this. Um, and, and it worked, you know, I really transformed. I mean, I, I did some really shameful stuff as a high school athlete, including like faking injuries in the middle huh. of a race. So I didn't have to finish. I actually hid in the woods one time wow. to avoid <laughs> having to start a race. And, and so that, that, that's, that was my starting point. And by the, by the time, you know, I came out the other side of this process, you know, I was fe utterly fearless. Like I, I actually, I, I now craved 
the intensity of suffering that I used to have the deepest of aversions to. So like I'm living proof that like, you know, this is doable. And so I was inspired by the greats. And I'm also living proof that you don't actually have to be great to, you know, kind of like borrow their, their recipe. Well, that's great to hear. And I, and I guess it must be true that even if you don't aspire to be great or even to achieve your maximum potential, so many people struggle to reach their medium potential that they could use these techniques maybe to get off the couch to just do a little more, get more, be more time efficient even, because if you can, in some of your workouts, suffer a little harder, you may be getting a little bigger payoff from the time that you're putting into it. What do you think? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, and it, that's, you know, to that point, it really is, you have to look at it, at it as a process. Like it, it's not... For me, it literally took years um, to, you know, to transform myself. So, you know, if you expect to like make a giant leap, you know, it's like, you know, wave your magic wand and problem solved, you're going to be frustrated. Um, so you should just, you know, just, you know, commit to this process yeah. and then celebrate the progress you, you make. Yeah. And some of this, I think, falls into the category of just being smarter. And, and I know that as I got older, I had to rely on being smarter to compete with the younger guys, you know, who could recover faster and train harder than I could, but I could be smarter than them because I had more experience and maybe that includes experience in knowing how to, you know, what my limit was and I could go right to it and maybe they didn't. And so, uh, anyway, so in competition, I think is where this sort of shows up the most is that you're, you know, if you wanted to be the best, you're competing against people who are good at this. So you have to be good at this unless somehow physically you are miles ahead of people. And come on, that just doesn't happen often enough to count on. But Glenn, what's your experience been? I mean, how important to you, although I've heard you talk about your VO2 max when you were at your peak, so maybe <laughs> the mental side was not that important to you, but what was your experience? Well, definitely with cycling, there's always an element of suffering. It's probably one of the reasons why I don't do road races anymore because the suffering lasted too long. Uh -huh. <laughs> so our criteria only lasts about an hour. But I, I was when I, while you were talking, Matt, I was thinking about this. How I'm not really, I don't really like time trials. And in a time trial, it's basically you against the clock. But when it's comes down to a criterion where it's you against the other rider, I'm distracted by the the fact that I'm competing against someone, and it allows me to go deeper in the suffering because I'm distracted essentially. In a time trial, there's less distractions. You're just focused on just you and you're, you're feeling the pain of the suffering. So um, there's something there about that for sure about distracting yourself so you can get a higher performance. But when it comes down to it, I know when I'm like going wire to wire or wheel to wheel with someone and I know we're, just, we're, we're battling out the line, there are times when I best, oh, I can't do it and I give up the ghost and they win. And that's when I say, well, I'm just gonna just go to the line and no matter what happens, I'm gonna get there. And I don't often know sometimes why that happens. It's just, it just it's just your mental state sometimes. It's the fact that you think they're stronger than I am. As a great example, um, when I was, I was sprinting at the national championships up in uh, Nevada against uh, Hugh Walton, and he, would, he remembers this. And um, Hugh attacks, he's a fantastic sprinter. He attacks and I hesitated for the split second. And that hesitation, it literally, it, we waited for an hour and a half for the results. It was about a centimeter difference between the two of us at the finish line. But my split second hesitation cost me the race. Because uh. I thought, He's Hugh Walton. I mean, <laughs> gosh. <laughs> and because of that, I, I lost the race. But. Uh, Interesting. Bummer, bummer. 
Well, cool. Well, so Matt, there's there's a, a I guess a lot of ways we could go through this. I'm interested in understanding two things in general from you, but I'm happy for you to walk us through what you know about this thing, however you think is best for us. But I'm curious to understand what are the mechanisms that we that occur naturally to everybody that keep us from doing our best. And even the suffering, I think, is is a mechanism of our body talking to us. But whatever you think is is are these things that are happening. And then the most important part would be, what are the tools that we should carry around in our tool bag so that if we can just have a few functioning brain cells at the right moment, we can pull, we can pick the right tool, or maybe it's just our one tool, and we pull it out and we use it and it helps us to be distracted, like Glenn is saying, or whatever you think. Do you think we can go through those two areas? Yes, sure thing. Um, so the, the science, uh, actually, I should say that the, the gentleman who wrote the foreword to that book, How Bad You Want It, is an, an Italian exercise physiologist named Samuela Marcora. And he's the father of a, a theory called the psychobiological model of endurance performance. And it's a mouthful. Yeah. Um, and it's based actually on a, a an earlier psychological theory that was still developed in the 70s by a guy named Jack Brame. And it, his theory was called motivational intensity theory. And it actually applies to general human psychology, not just in endurance sports. And his theory is that what anytime you, you know, a human being goes into, uh, you know, pursues a goal that requires effort and sacrifice, um, they have, they go into it with a certain level of potential motivation, which basically means there's even, they, they might be conscious of it or they might not, but they're, they have a sense of what this goal is worth to them and, mm. and what they're willing to sacrifice to achieve it. And as they go through the actual process of pursuing the goal, the stakes rise, the, the, the cost that they're paying increases, increases. And if at any point before either, either they achieve the goal and yay, they celebrate, or if they get to a point where the actual cost exceeds or threatens to exceed what they were willing to pay, they quit. They or in his terms, disengage. And Marcora said, "This is exactly what's going on in endurance sports." So um, this this theory it was was it, it sort of Marcora came up with it in um, opposition to Tim Noakes's central governor model, where. You know, Noakes is just saying, though, there's like this homunculus inside your head that just puts the brakes on you against your will when you like your body perceives a threat. And and Marcora is like, first of all, there is no central governor. We can't find it. <laughs> and, <laughs> and and second, we don't even need it. Like, it's just it's just human nature where like, you know, we're we're only willing to suffer so much. So so he said it's all psychology. It's just uh -huh. we ch we quit. We simply voluntarily quit even when we don't feel like it. It's a, it's a choice. No different from from any other type of goal pursuit. So that's where the title of your book comes from. How bad do you want it? Right. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> OK. So. <laughs> well, cool, cool. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess that makes sense. I, even I think in Glenn's example, it wasn't that he didn't want it bad enough. He didn't, for a moment, or an instant, he didn't think he could do it. And so it meant, well, any more investment wouldn't pay off. But it was just for that moment. And then, but that was the gap that cost him the race. Okay. Gosh, I'm not sure exactly how to talk about this.
clearly there's there's this business of learning to get comfortable with being uncomfortable. I mean, I think this is sort of central to so many things for our health, you know, where we talk about cold exposure and heat exposure and exercise and, you know, not eating constantly, having food in our mouths and even if we're hungry. Uh, and so these things of, of being uncomfortable, being comfortable with that, I, I think is the beginning of this idea of being able to suffer not suffer in like somebody with a medical problem or, you know, with some damage to their body that gives them agony. Uh, so maybe we're overusing the word, but still what we mean in terms of being able to, you know, you're feeling, you're, you're getting this obvious communication from your body that, oh, you should, you should back off. You're trying too hard or you should quit. You should go home. There's a nice show on TV. You should go do that. You know, whatever the, the thought is, uh, I've had all of the thoughts. <laughs> your brain is communicating with you. And so uh, I guess it does make sense that there's this, there's a motivational thing where you're talking back, shut up. I'm not listening to you. I really want, I want the outcome of this thing. What should we talk about next? Like preparing for bad luck. I mean, uh, I'll tell you that uh, anytime I've ever gotten a flat tire in a race, I'm done. You know, I'm, I'm not <laughs> racing around to try to fix, you know, get my spare wheel. And it's like, ah, oh, I'm out, you know? And why is that? Well, well, because I don't think I can win. I, yeah. I don't think I can recover from that. And that's going to be so much of a pain in the neck. So that's enough of an excuse. I'm out. So uh, I'm not sure what where, where you want to go with this. Well, let's linger on that idea of uh, getting comfortable, being uncomfortable for a second. Okay. Um, there's, you know, when I'm sort of, you know, trying to, to deliver this point in writing or or, or presentations. I, I cite a really fascinating study that was done involving young kids around the around the, the age actually I was when I ran that field day, two yeah. laps around the soccer field. So maybe 10, 11 year olds. And they, and they had them run an 800 meter track race on three separate occasions. And anyone who's ever run the eight knows it's <laughs> the most painful event in all of, of running. It, you know, if you want to, if you want to barf, Run the 800. Um, but for these kids, they had never run this distance before. They were a lot like me at field day. It's just like, you know, I've got to run fast and far. And actually, it was a pacing study. So that what they were expecting to find was that, you know, these kids who'd never run this distance before, they would improve, you know, without any training, you know, in between the three trials because they paced better. And what they found was, sure enough, the kids did get faster. And this is, again, without any training effect, it's just familiarization. They, they, just, yeah. it, they went from having not done it before to having done it once to having done it twice. So they got faster each time, but actually their pacing strategies didn't change. What they found was that they got faster just because they tried harder. <laughs> and, and, and so, you know, when you have that first exposure to this like intensity and, and flavor of suffering you've never known before, yeah. there's a, you, you think you're dying. You're like, oh my God, like this is dangerous and it, it gets you to hold back. But, you know, the thing, the, the, the important thing to understand about these perceptual limits is that just because it's in the mind doesn't mean it's not real. But what it does mean is that it's more mutable than a physical limit. Like, you know, when you hit a hard physical limit, it's like you uh, getting a flat tire in a race. It's, it's show, the show's over, right? With yeah. psychological perceptual limits, they're, they're, they're movable. And, you know, Glenn, you said earlier that like you, you're faster in, in crits than you are in time trials. Why? Because 
that that limit is movable and and there's a lot of research showing that people everyone is faster in a, in a race than they are in a solo time trial so you know these kids after the first 800 they're like okay well that really hurt but it didn't actually kill me so when they did it again they're like let's press a little deeper into this and so in those you know the very first three you know quote unquote distance runs that these kids did in their lives they learned to get a little more comfortable being uncomfortable and it's that's not the only thing involved in, in you know just mastering you know mind over a muscle but that's a, a big part of it sure yeah that rings a bell uh, i read an article recently about why do runners accelerate to the finish and it's like well if they if they had that extra go juice for the sprint why didn't they just go faster during the race and the speculation of the article anyway was that they couldn't they totally were doing what they could because these were like high-end people with tons of experience they only when they saw the finish when they knew where the finish line was were they able to say okay i can gather what's left and deploy it when i wasn't sure when the finish was or that i could finish it i couldn't go any faster that, I mean, does that sound like the same thing to you or is that something different? Yeah, um, you know, I like how Mark Hora, um, the aforementioned, explains that phenomenon, you know, the, the end spurt, as they call it in the, <laughs> in the studies. Um, so, you know, what, what his point is that, you know, any athlete, they think of the goal, they, they, they think of the goal in racing as singular. They have one goal, which is to, well, if you take, you know, head to head racing out of, out of it, um, the goal is to get to the finish line in the least amount of time possible, right? Very simple. But Marcora points out, no, there are actually two goals. The first goal is to get to the finish line, period. <laughs> and then, you know, a very, very close second is to get to the finish line as quickly as possible. So when you understand that there's sort of like, you know, there's a, you know, one goal nested, you know, closely inside another, in, in order to make sure you, that, you know, even the Olympic, Olympic gold medalists, they want to be sure they finish. So it forces you, you know, we've talked a lot about perceptions, but... But you know, racing and pacing are also cognitive challenges where you're actually kind of doing a, a sort of organic math the entire time you're racing. So like, you know how far you have to go, you know how far you've gone, and you're just, you're just being smart. You're, you're being a little bit conservative, not because you're not tough, but because it's smart to be a little bit conservative to ensure you get to the finish line. And the closer you get, in, in, in effect, even a marathon becomes, a sprint eventually right you know so the yeah, as the yeah. as the race as you get deeper into the race and you're closer to the finish line, finish line you're, you're more sure about what you can actually do like it, it's even hard I've, I've run 50 marathons that that distance is still hard to comprehend yeah. but you know like as to your point when you see the finish line you're like okay i know what i can do for this <laughs> amount of time and then right. you, you just open up the throttle so what you're saying actually opens my mind to think I also have multiple goals in every sporting event that I'm doing or even a workout. I'm worried about lots of things that I'm having to balance all at the same time. Kind of reminds me of the first time I watched the Tour of France and it was so confusing 
people <laughs> seemed like they were going after so many different goals all at the same time. It's like, why are they racing off the front with a hundred miles to go? They can't possibly win. Well, that's not what they're after. Well, so I all you know. So what am I trying to do? Well, I'd like to win if I can, but if I don't win, I at least want to not do badly, right? So what badly mean? Uh, well, I didn't finish unless I had a good excuse, right? You know, I had a flat tire. Oh, that was not my fault. You know, there's nothing I could have done about that. You attack off the front and they catch you. Why, why don't people do that? Well, because if they get caught, they're done. They, you know, if they finish, they, you know, they're off the back. They, they don't, they used up all their go juice. Um, so people, what do they do? What do I do? I hang with the pack and I hang with the pack and I try to be careful and save a little something for the sprint. And then, you know, the people that win are, are gone, you know, and, and, and cause I, you know, I didn't chase down the attack and then off they went and that, and actually, and that attack stuck. So I have lots of goals. Uh, you know, my ego, it's not like anybody is going to criticize me to my face anyway. It's myself. Yeah. I don't want to be, I said that I, I hate being afraid, but I also hate being bad. <laughs> and so, you know, yeah, there's this, there's this f funny calculus that we're doing, trying to balance out all of the goals that we're trying to do at the same time. And I think in the end, what it always results in is us not trying our hardest until the end. And sometimes that works out, but a lot of times it doesn't work out if your goal was to win the race. Well said. Yeah. Okay. So I guess let's, let's focus the rest of our time on the methods, the things that people can do to try to coax more performance out of their bodies and minds against their you know, I don't know, against their will, against the will of their lower brain, which is trying to say, hey, why are you doing that? You have lots of goals. You have a goal to survive and procreate. You have a, a goal to, you know, conserve your calories. And so you don't starve to death. You know, they've got all these basic goals. And what you're doing now seems really foolish to me <laughs> as the low brain. And I really think you ought to back off. And so what do people do that succeeds at overcoming all this sort of internal talk that might be in the form of talk? It might be in the form of pain or nausea or something else. Yes. So um, I think the place to start is by introducing, which I should have before now, this concept of per perception of effort or per perceived exertion, which is really that is that is the suffering that we experience as endurance athletes. I mean, there can be actual pain, but perception of effort is a distinct perception. It's like, okay. you know, if I ask you, how hard are you working right now yeah. relative to your limit? Anyone can answer that question very, very easily. Right. And that uh, we, we know exactly what's going on in the brain that produces uh, perceived effort. It's just like you can you can perceive being hungry, you can perceive being cold. It is like a distinct, like well understood phenomenon. And that really is our limiter. Hmm. And what's important about it is that because it is our limiter, anything, there, there are basically only two ways you can possibly improve your performance as an endurance athlete. Either, you increase your tolerance for perceived effort, or you lower the actual amount of effort you're perceiving at any given level of output. So literally anything you can name from training to nutrition, to equipment, 
to psychological interventions is mediated through perception of perception of effort. It's only doing one of two things, allowing you to hurt more or making you hurt less at any given level of output. And so if you think about it that way, huh. I mean, there's a gigantic laundry list of different things that, that can that can have either of those two effects. In the book, I'll, I'll just, you know, quickly name a, a t- you know two or three. One is the, the group effect. We talked about uh, of twice now how people can dig deeper in groups uh, than they can alone. And I talk about um, the, the Kenyan t- uh, system for developing uh, runners where like everyone trains in a group. And, and now in the US at the elite level, that's more common, but actually uh, up until uh, after the disastrous 2000 Olympics when no American male or female finished higher than sixth in any event of 800 meters or up, Wow. And all these uh, pro teams started emerging. They like Kenya was like that's that's all anyone ever did was train in groups and and you know the the research is very sound um, and it isn't just actually uh, competition that does it. It's also a phenomenon called behavioral synchrony, which is just like humans. You know we're we're social animals, so when you're doing the same thing that other humans around you are also doing at the same time, whether it's cooperative or or competitive, your your pain tolerance actually increases. Um, so training in groups is one thing that I would, um, if you want to raise your great game, find other athletes uh, that, who are about similar in ability to, to train with. Yeah, That's one. Another one would be um, to set goals that are achievable, but barely. Uh, there's a chapter in the book where I talk about uh, Lamont, Greg LeMond's famous uh, final time trial in, in the 1989 Tour de France where he yeah. yeah, he needed 58 seconds and he got him and he, he rode uh, what stood forever as you know the fastest time trial ever ridden in the Tour de France. And it was on the last day when he's exhausted. And it was because like he had to do something that he thought was just barely possible. And so if you want to f- realize your full potential as an athlete, that's the kind of goal you need to set. Like if it's out of reach, you know that and you're not going to try as hard. If it's easy, you know that and you're not going to try as hard. So it has to be um, you know, achievable, but, but just barely. So that's a couple, but there, there, are, there are many more. Very interesting. Well, so I guess we really ought to try to, I don't know whether we could like create buckets of types and and then talk about you know one or two in each or just talk about what do you think are the best ways let's just focus on the ones where it increases your tolerance for the pain because the other stuff is just like training right you know um how to get fitter um how to you know have better skill so that you can put more power into the pedals you know things like that but we're talking about focusing on here is how to increase your reduce, I guess, is the better way to say, your perception of the suffering. Yep. Whether that's by you don't notice the suffering or you can distract yourself from the suffering or you can whatever that where you can just tolerate more of that of that pain, whether it's a mental kind of a thing or it's an actual physical thing. I mean, yep. sometimes people, their pain, their legs hurt, right? You know, at the Jens Voigt, shut up legs kind of a thing. And... <laughs> You know, maybe that's a bucket, this business of accept it. It's not going to kill you. It feels bad, but it totally is not like going to damage your legs, you know. And so go ahead and do it one time and see if your legs fall off. Okay, they didn't fall off. So <laughs> now it's it's just accepting it. And this is just a part of it. And, you know, either you can or you can't. Um, what else? 
Yeah, you know, there are a lot of ways to, I mean, the title of the book is How Bad Do You Want It, right? Uh, yeah. And that that clearly relates to motivation. And there are a lot of ways, the more motivated you are, the, the, the more you will be willing to suffer. That gets back to Jack Brame's theory of uh, p- uh, potential uh, motivational intensity. So, for example, I'll just give you a personal example. Um, one, th- one technique that I used to elevate my, my level of motivation was to, to go public, to put my goals out there so that mm. if I failed, I failed publicly. Um, like, for example, in, in 2017, I spent the summer training with the Northern Arizona Elite professional running team. I was 46 years old and had never been a pro even at 26. But... Um, pulled some strings and got embedded with this team for 13 weeks. And I, I blogged about the entire journey uh, as I went through it. And I was yeah. actually preparing for the Chicago Marathon, which I got to run. Some rules were bent for me and I actually got to run it as a pro. <laughs> huh? And so, and I, I, I am a very, I have always been very injury prone. So like, it, like, it's like, it's sort of like a coin flip, whether I even make it to the start line of a, a marathon. <laughs> and, and my goal was to, you know, set a personal best time, um, you know, nine years after I had run my, my, my fastest marathon. Yeah. And, and I hadn't come within eight minutes of it ever, ever uh, since then. So yeah. I was really raising the bar high and, and what we kind of, because I wrote a book about this experience called Running the Dream. And basically what I wanted to do was simulate the pressure that the real pros were under, because that's uh-huh. what I was doing. I was all in just trying to live and be like a professional runner. But that accountability, the fact that I knew there was a lot riding on this, like if I failed, it would be spectacular. And I, I knew there were people who wanted me to fail um, and let me know about it <laughs> on social media, but really? it, it made me more mo- motivated. Like, like I'm like, like, you know, failing would be worse than whatever I had to go through to, to succeed. And so that's something like anyone, ha- if you got social media, use it uh, to, um, well, to make yourself sort of publicly accountable. So I guess the first thing, though, was you had a goal. Yep. So having a goal maybe helps give you some motivation and then making it public makes it even more motivating, right? You would would hate to back out now harder. You got to come up with a better excuse now that you told everybody uh, about it. Okay. Well, what else? What other things? Like, um, this doesn't happen to me, but I have seen people, they stress themselves out before an event and they, you know, they worry about every one of the 5,000 things that could go wrong. And they're, you know, they talk, essentially talk themselves out of it, you know, or they're, they're tense when they're starting this hundred mile thing. And it's like, Oh my God, you know, how many hours can you grip your handlebars that tight? <laughs> you know, I mean, it, you know, you can't possibly finish five, you know, seven hours or whatever it's going to be holding it that tight. So is that an issue? I mean, do people need to learn how to relax? Yep, uh, for sure. And it's obviously one of those things that's easier said than done. The, the analogy I make is like, if you, if you really want to, you're having trouble sleeping. Um, like, have you ever tried to will yourself to fall asleep? Like, it's like, it's absolutely the worst thing you could, like, I mean, it makes sense on one level because you want to sleep, but if you're like sit, lying in bed, come on, God damn it, sleep. Like yeah. that's, <laughs> that's not gonna yeah. make you fall asleep. And and it's, it's kind of similar, easier said than done with like- yeah. So just trying more, really hard to relax is sort of an oxymoron? Yes, yes okay. exactly. But um, I mean, the, the, we know 
we know how it's done when it's done. Uh, and, and one thing that I, you know, in my coaching that I really focus on in that regard is process focus. And, and, and the thing is, we, we tend to think that like, oh, either we care about the outcome or we're focused on the process. No, like if you like, like you don't actually have to think about your outcome to achieve it. Like you set a goal and then you stop thinking about it until you've either achieved it or not and focus entirely on on the how. And, the, you know, the athletes who are just, you know, who never choke and are, you know, are, are just gamers. They're, they're all about the execution. So they're controlling the controllables and judging themselves on that, trusting that they will get the best outcome if they do that. So just, you know, there's lots of little stuff you can do to just sort of ingrain a more process focus. Like the, the outcome, you, you still want to succeed, but you're not, you're not focused on that. Your attention is on the how. Okay. So we've we've spoken a few times about focus, and Glenn spoke about how by focusing on the actual events of the race, he's distracted from his suffering, you know, versus doing a time trial where there's nothing but the suffering to focus on. I wonder if there isn't some stuff there. I mean, for example, I find that when I'm doing some low-level exercise, low level of effort, the biggest problem I have is that I'm bored. And so I like to listen to some music or maybe I'll listen to a podcast. But if I'm trying really hard, it just irritates the hell out of me to have music on or something else on. I, I can't focus on the, what anybody is saying. And, and But what will help me is something like a, like a mantra, some repetitive thing, you know, whether I'm counting to 10 or or i'm focusing one one of my tricks that i i learned actually by listening to something from dave scott some years ago was when i'm doing some kind of a thing like a time trial where I, there's nothing to distract me uh from my suffering i'll focus on my pedal stroke and i'll just do what he called perfect circles and i'll just do my right leg 10 times and then I'll do my left leg 10 times, and then I'll do my right leg 10 times. And minutes have gone by, and I have been able to tolerate it much better than I, I would have. I mean, is there anything like that that is um, common among yes. elite people? Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a fairly robust uh, research on uh, the role of attentional focus um, in an, as it relates to perception of effort and, and performance. So generally speaking, you're going to, um, you know, the, the thing about, you know, the, this suffering is that it actually has two layers. One is how you feel, which you can't do anything about. And the other is how you feel about how you feel, <laughs> which is how you interpret what you're feeling, which you can do something about. You can manipulate that, how you feel about how you feel um, in a lot of different ways. And, and so one of them is to, you know, because when you're suffering, like like when you're really, you know, really in the in the pain cave in a race, it, it seems like that's the only thing that's going on, but it's not. Like, you know, there's always a lot going on. And and so if it, you know, if if you tend to if it's like it's like if you're drowning, you're not making shopping lists, right? Like you're, uh -huh, it's like yeah. you, you, like you, you <laughs> might you might need eggs back home, but you're not really you're not worried about that right now. Um, so what you can do is like if you if you allow if you allow yourself to sort of obsess 
about your suffering and, and treat it as if it's absolute and totalizing and there's nothing else going on, it actually intensifies it. Like you're, you're, you're sort of brooding or ruminating as the psychologist would say, like you're, you're, you're making yourself feel as bad as you possibly can about how you feel. And that part you can't do anything about. So what you do with the pedal strokes is helpful. It, you know, generally, you know, what, what seems to work best is to focus on performance relevant external stimuli or or the interface between your body and the environment versus just completely just obsessing about god this hurts um so you 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 in fact don't want to make shopping lists when you're in the heat of competition because that's not performance relevant it it gets your mind off your suffering but it actually is not as effective as as effective as if you say like put a target on the back of the guy or gal in front of you and and try to reel them in ah okay okay I wonder if there isn't anything around, you know, this business of everybody can sprint to the finish line, um, which actually maybe isn't true, but a lot of people can, you know, they, they can muster up whatever's left and throw it into the race at that time. Is there some way that you can use that phenomenon by creating sort of preliminary finish lines, um, you know, I'm going to get to, you know, it's a it's a four lap thing, and it's lap number three, so I'm not at the finish line, but I'm going to create a finish line to take advantage of this phenomenon. Yeah, that's a that's a really interesting question, and I I think you know I think the answer is yes. I mean. You know, it, and then, you know, the devil's in the details, right? Because, I mean, th- there are ways you might do that that would blow up in your face, uh, you know. <laughs> but I think there are, there are. I'm thinking of, of a, a 10K race that I, I did um, twice. And there was two years separation. And the first time I, I ran it, I ran a certain time. And then, yeah. and then two years later, when I came back to it, I was two years older, two years deeper into middle age. Yeah. And... And not any fitter, but I knew my time from two years ago. I'm like, I'm gonna beat it. I'm just, I just am. And but I knew it was, it was gonna, <laughs> you know. I just, I wasn't, I wasn't fitter, and I was older, like I said. So I, I was like, there was only one way to do it, which was to, <laughs> to hurt more. And 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 so the way I approached that race mentally is just as you suggest. I decided I'm gonna run two 5k races <laughs> and, and 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 so i i for the first half of the race i only focused on the the 5k turnaround it's like i'm i'm gonna get there and sure enough like i i, I got there i'm like oh my god I, i'm getting just what i asked for here <laughs> like <laughs> but i did it. i i beat i ended up beating my time you know by like 10 or 11 seconds from two years before. And nice. it, yeah, I took away kind of a, a cool lesson from that. So yeah, I mean, you have to be careful like how you frame those, you know, those mirage finish lines you set for yourself. But if you if you set it up right, I think it can be performance enhancing. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I guess the the uh, the last thing that, it, that occurs to me that came into my awareness about the universe some time ago when I was at a velodrome and and was preparing to go to nationals. And the coach was talking about preparing, you know, instead of getting on the track and doing a warm up on the track, you had to learn to be able to warm up on your trainer. Because sometimes you go to these big events and you can't get on a track. You just can't control it. There's too many people, you know. And so you have got to prepare for bad things happening so that you're ready for it. 
And I thought, oh, that is really smart. And so I wonder if that isn't part of this game, that maybe the way to, and I, I never did this myself in a crit because I talk about how, uh, you know, I would, I would hang back and hang back and, and sometimes I'd, I'd, I'd talk myself out of chasing something down and I'd say, oh, it'll come back. Some of the times it didn't and that was the end of the race. And part of it was just this fear of, well, I've only got so many matches and I don't want to burn them all up. And, but I didn't really know how many matches I had. I really didn't know. And so what I could have done is I could have picked some races and the goal of the race was not to win. The goal of the race was to find out how many matches I had, chase down <laughs> everything, and then find out if I was done at the, before the end of the race and, and be okay with it. Because the purpose of the race was to find out, was I really going to get cooked and it, then I had nothing left at the end? Or maybe I would find I was good. I could recover in between. You know, or maybe I would have stuck with the, the, the attack that got away and I was there. But, you know, I didn't do that. So um, what do you think about that? Yeah, uh, I like it. Um, you know, it's, a, it's similar to a, a technique I, I employ in my coaching uh, that I, I refer to as like, I don't know if this is politically correct or not, but kamikaze races where yeah. the, the goal of the race is just to break from your, because you can get comfortable with any formula and you're just, as you suggest, you're sort of making assumptions about your limits or, or, yeah. or, the, or the best way to race. And sometimes it's good, especially for athletes who fear, fear failure or who just, you know, shrink from, you know, the really, really, you know, the cauldron of, of pain uh, in races. Just to, it does. This doesn't work with um, ultra marathons. Don't do it. Don't do a kamikaze ultra marathon. <laughs> but, but for for a shorter race where it's like you know nothing's going to explode if you if you crash and burn and just treat that race as it is sort of a stepping stone. It's it's like it, it truly is about the process and you're just you're just taking a flyer. You you know the way I like to frame it um, for athletes is. You know, don't don't guarantee that you crash and burn, but but ch choose a goal that you're that you're five percent that you have five percent confidence that you can achieve. Um, so, like, you know, probably not, but you can't rule it out. And then just go for it. Go for it as if it has to happen, and see what happens. And guaranteed, you're going to learn something, no matter what. The it really the the result doesn't matter because you, you learn something, and and then you can apply it to. Um, you know, to your future racing and, and uh, maybe have a better formula. Yeah. Okay, good. Well, and so getting back to the, the lesson I had learned at, on the track, I think that we probably all have something that triggers us to want to quit, you know, and, and it might be a feeling, but it might be, oh, that guy's stronger than me. I can't do it. You know, or this group is too strong for me, uh, or today's not my day, you know, or whatever it is. And these thoughts that defeat you because they, they give you an excuse or they undermine your motivation, I don't know what it is, but if you can identify which ones are yours and when they come to you, you know what's happening. Yep. And you can be armed. Yep. You can like have something you do. You know, maybe it's just you shut down that talk, man. And that, yep. That, we're not thinking about that. Or, or maybe there's something else that you do that, um, I don't know, maybe instead of 
that being the thing that triggers me to quit. Whenever I have that thought, I attack. You know. What do you got, Glenn? Hey, Joe, I just thinking about something when you mentioned that. You know, when I'm in a race sometimes and I'm really struggling and really suffering, yeah. I have to remind myself that everyone else is suffering too. Yeah. Yes. I mean, some of we get that. <laughs> yep. They're all we're all we're all elite athletes. We're all suffering about the same level. The question is is that if I realize that they're suffering, my suffering doesn't feel so bad because it's part of the group <laughs> like suffering kind of thing. But it yeah. also means that if I'm willing to suffer longer than they are, then I'll do better as a result. So it's a really key thing to think, keep in your mind the idea that everyone else is suffering too. No one, there's no one in that group that's working hard that's not suffering, unless they're yeah. Lance Armstrong. But yeah. that rarely happens. Everyone's about the same level. And that's something you have to remind yourselves while you're racing or while you're doing an event that everyone's suffering. Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. It's a it it you have to remind yourself of that cuz it's yeah. not like they're all fresh and you're <laughs> the only one about to crack. That you know, that as long as you've all been together the whole time, you know, then you yeah. know that they're that they're hurting too. So that's a good point. Um the only the last thing I guess that I had is and it seems more theoretical than real. So I'll throw it out here and you guys can stomp on it if you necessary. You know that there are these self-limiting things. You know, logically, you know you're not about to die, right? If you tried just a little harder, you wouldn't die. You might hurt a little more, but just because you th your body is screaming at you, you're going to die and shouldn't you go home, you, you know <laughs> logically that you won't. And so why not just sometimes try 1% more? And just see if you don't die, you know. And then maybe now you know you can go a little bit harder. Because I think that it's this business of not letting that pain or, or how you react to that pain, right? I mean, maybe you can't stop feeling the pain unless it's a distraction thing, like Glenn was saying. But when you're feeling the pain and you're feeling it, then it's how you react to it is the other side of the equation. And if you just say, "Look, this is just pain." This is not actually my health. It's it's not it's nothing but just a bad feeling, and I am. And if I can be un, I can be comfortable being uncomfortable. Then why can't I be one percent more uncomfortable? What do you guys think? Is that stupid? It's it's well, you're not going to hear me say it's stupid, um, but you know I think what you know what you're getting at, or the way I look at what you're getting at, is is reminding yourself that you're you always have choices. You're Sometimes, you know, when you when you're just, you know, in the thick of um, you're, you're suffering in a race, it can feel like you don't like it's all reflex. Um, oh, I have to slow down or, you know, like I have to quit. But but you don't. You're always making choices. And this doesn't again, this doesn't mean that your limits are imaginary and you could just take off and fly if you, you know, if you just you know, willed it. Um, your, your limits are real, but you are always making choices out there uh, in, in relation to your, you know, your, your mission to find your, your ultimate limit. Yeah, yeah. Well, I guess it, it should be said. Glenn, did you have something you wanted to add there? Yeah, I was, I was thinking of something because while we were speaking about this, there's a club that I belong to called the Incline Club here in Colorado. And Matt Carpenter is the guy behind it. And the, the saying on the T-shirt says, when it hurts, go harder. And I thought about that, and I was thinking that in light of this has happened. I've done this several times actually in a bike race. We're all at our limit. We're all suffering. We're all just just digging deep, trying to stay with the group, and then I attack. 
And it's really funny because what happens is a psychological game you play with the other riders. You have to play psychology. You want to beat them, right? Well, they think, oh, my God, he's a lot stronger than me. And they actually mentally give up because I attacked. Uh-huh. It's a little strategy that I've used sometimes. It's like play this game. You know, I mean, I'm at my rope. I'm at the end of my rope. But I just dig that little bit deeper and just make my attack. And they all go like they don't respond because they're thinking, he, he's, is he really that much stronger than us? Kind of thing. And it's, it's a very effective tool sometimes. It works. Sometimes it doesn't, but it does work. Well, you've got to tell the story of the two things that that you did. We know from other parts of our lives that when you smile, you feel oh. like a person who smiles. <laughs> and if you make frowny faces, then it affects how you feel, right? You feel frowny right. face-like. And right. so um, you had told the story to me of two situations, one where you were pretending to be tired so that the, <laughs> the people didn't know how fresh you were and the effect right. that that had on you, you pretending right. to be tired affected you. Um, and then also you being the only dude in the pack grinning, sprinting for the finish. <laughs> yeah, well, the first one was the national championships. It was a four-man breakaway. And they're all the best guys in the U.S., that kind of stuff. So the whole thing is that I knew I was strong. I knew I had a good chance of winning the race, but I didn't want anyone else to know that. And so I was actually acting tired. I was, I was rocking the bike. I was pedaling heel down. I was, when it came down to pull, I didn't want to take a strong pull because I didn't want to waste my energy. So I, I'd act like I was really tired and pull off early and just, but it was really funny. And all my teammates were kind of, they could see me going, he looks tired. They're going, come on, Glenn, you can do it. And I'm kind of going like, no, no, I'm really strong, but I'm faking it. But I started to feel tired. <laughs> By faking, I started to feel like I was, even though I was taking shorter pulls, I wasn't working as hard. I was trying to stay out of the wind and conserve my energy for the sprint. I was starting to feel tired because I was acting tired. It's kind of really weird if you think about it. I did win the race, though. That was nice. All right. Well, but that's a good lesson, that, though, because I, the lesson <laughs> is that you can affect how you feel by how you act. And so mm-hmm. if you, and I think this is, get, gets back to what Matt was saying, is how you react to how you're feeling matters. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah. and there's there's science. Uh, there, there have been really fun studies um, that back up the experience or validate the, the experience you have where they'll they'll have, um, you know, because you, you, know, you, you naturally sort of, your face contorts, you know, we've all seen our race photos. It's like, oh my God, that guy's <laughs> ugly. But like the, the studies like where if you actually resist the impulse and just try to, you, you can maybe not smile, but just maintain like a, relaxed placid expression it actually it reduces perceived effort um and uh, there was another another study done it could also be external so really fascinating study where they had people doing uh time trials on on stationary bikes looking at videos and unbeknownst to the subjects they flashed um so quickly that it was subliminal like they saw it without realizing they saw it like um faces that were either smiling or, or grimacing and those, even though they, were, they did not consciously remember seeing it, those affected perceived effort and performance as well. Wow. So wow. if they got if they got frowny faces, they did worse, and if they got happy faces, they did better. So yes, it's all real. Well, fantastic, wow. I, fun stuff. I tell you that um, as we wrap this thing up here, I want to say that um, the only regrets that I've got in athletics are times when I quit. I I remember them. I, I, I am shamed that I did that. And, you know, and, and I, I prefer winning, 
but I never regretted it not winning. Even if I made a mistake and didn't win, of course I didn't, you know, wasn't happy about that. But if, uh, but I didn't regret it. I don't have like bad memories of that. But if I quit because I didn't feel, you know, like I could do it, or even if I quit in the race and just didn't try my hardest because I, oh, I can't beat these guys. I always felt bad about myself when I did that. And so that, and I think that that comes from, I don't know, just a lifetime of doing competitive sports and including mountaineering where at high altitude, you, you know, you always feel like you're going to puke and sometimes you do puke. And so, you know, feeling good is never a part of, of um, what you're trying to do. But mental suffering, I think, is a part of what you accept if you're going to do athletics. It's men- mental suffering is a big part of it. And, and it probably has an impact on you as a person and the way you live in your normal life, too. Matt, did you ever find anything like that, that the, how you deal with mental suffering in your athletics has an effect on you or maybe comes from how you are as a person in your real life? Uh, very much so. Um and like, so I wrote a memoir a number of years ago called Life is a Marathon. And it's sort of, it's about both uh, my athletic journey and my personal journey. Um, and it's really, that is the, the theme of the book. Um, uh, not to just toss grenades when we're trying to wrap up here. So, but um, my, my wife of 21 years happens to have bipolar disorder. And uh-huh. shortly after she was diagnosed, you know, our, our world, just was turned upside down, and we, there was a full decade of just a lot of 911 calls and involuntary hospitalizations, and it, like it, it was just a nightmare. I mean, obviously for her first and foremost, but yeah. but me, but me as well. And I, you know, and I realized that I mean, no one's prepared for that, but yeah. that this this mission that I was on to transform myself from a coward to a hero as an athlete. Yeah. It transferred over to the much higher stakes of needing to be strong and brave to support my wife and really uh, myself through um, that, you know, that that drama. And so, yeah, I can tell you from experience that, you know, because you've only had you've only got one mind. So when you when you cultivate these tools as, as an athlete, they do serve you in in other parts of, of life. I, I think that's true. What do you think, Glenn? Absolutely true. <laughs> yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, this has been fantastic. I wish we had more time, but uh, we don't. And uh, but thank you, uh, uh, both of you, uh, for your time. And Matt, thanks for coming back onto the show. You're a real pro, and um, I'm gonna give you a chance here. Uh, tell us again uh, about your website and how we can uh, find uh, this book and your other books. Yep, my personal website is mattfitzgerald.org, and I, I think believe all of my many, many, many books are, are on there uh, somewhere. Yeah. Um, and then my business website is 8020endurance.com. All right. Well, I'll get that in the show notes again. Um, it'll be easier this time because I'll just copy and paste it. And, and uh, But uh, guys, you have a great day. Uh, thanks for taking some time on a, uh, well, here in North Carolina it is a beautiful Saturday. Um, I hope it's beautiful where you are too. It is. Thanks, bad. Joe. All righty. Have a good one. Alrighty. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening in to our discussion about mastering the psychology of mind over muscle with Matt Fitzgerald. You can find more information about Matt, his books, and his website in the show notes. 
While you're there, you can sign up to take a free fitnesses practices assessment, send us a question to address on the podcast, see all of our episodes, subscribe to our podcast, and you can sign up for our newsletter. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends. That'd be a great help. Thanks again.